If we hold and really allow Jesus's word to interrogate us, we find that we have to ask the question of, what is it about my social location that might distort my vision? For example, like you're saying, this we grew up in the 80s. We, we were formed by capitalism. Like, right. Where do I have a bias that's caused me to read that into what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a way that you know, is, is not actually um, reflective of, of either the texts, if we take them in their wholeness, or of the, of the heart of God. And to just begin to let ourselves be interrogated because we know that the, to get the planks out of our eyes is going to let us see Jesus and his, the good news of his kingdom more clearly. Like, what do I need to unlearn as it relates to what the good news of Jesus is based on my social location? And that might be my social location in American evangelicalism. Friends, it's Morgan Snyder, and welcome back to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. I want to begin today with some words from David Brooks in his brilliant book, Second Mountain. He says he writes the book as a response to a current historical moment. Brooks says, we all grow up in one moral ecology or another. Some moral ecologies are local in a home or office, but some are vast and define whole eras and civilizations. The classical Greeks and Romans had their honor code with its vision of immortal fame. In the late 19th century, Parisian artists invented a bohemian code celebrating individual freedom and wild creativity while across the channel, Victorian morality was beginning to form with its strict codes of propriety and respectability. Moral ecologies subtly guide how we dress, how we talk, how we admire and disdain, and how we define our ultimate purpose. Moral ecologies are collective responses to the big problems of a specific moment. Just take that in one more time. Moral ecologies are collective responses to the big problems of a specific moment. For example, around the middle third of the 20th century, people in the Northern Hemisphere faced a Great Depression and a cataclysmic world war. Big problems required big institutional responses. People joined armies to form unions, worked at big companies. They bonded tightly together as a warring nation. Therefore, a culture developed that emphasized doing your duty, fitting into institutions, conforming to groups, deferring to authority, not trying to stick out or get too big for your britches. This group-oriented moral ecology could be summed up by this phrase, we're all in this together. For the last six decades, the worship of the self has been the central preoccupation of the culture and one of the fundamental moral ecologies that are shaping the developed world. Molding the self, investing the self, expressing the self, capitalism, the meritocracy, and modern social science have normalized selfishness. They have made it seem that the only human motives that are real are the self-interested ones, the desire for money, status, and power. They silently spread the message that giving, care, and love are just icing 
on the cake of society. If the moral ecology of our predecessors was, we are all in this together, this new moral ecology is all about freedom, autonomy, and authenticity. And it's encapsulated in this phrase, I'm free to be myself. It is an emancipation narrative. The idea was to be liberated from dogma, political oppression, social prejudice, and group conformity. And friends, this is the central idea we began last year's study with the concept of the big me. It's a me-centered reality. And here's the problem. In a culture of I'm free to be myself, individuals are lonely and loosely attached. This situation makes it difficult to be good to fulfill the deep human desires for love and connection. It's hard on people of all ages, but especially hard on young adults. They're thrown into a world that's unstructured and uncertain, with few authorities or guardrails, except those they are expected to build on their own. Among other things, it becomes phenomenally hard to launch yourself into life. Friends, today, Sherry and I want to invite you into a deep conversation on moral ecologies, on the worldviews that have shaped what we have come to believe about God and fundamentally the gospel in which we find ourselves. And so welcome. Welcome to an intimate and very hopeful conversation with Sherry and me where we believe a new dawn is rising. We're reflecting this morning on this quote that we so often use, but is so fundamental in understanding our mission that every generation is losing the gospel and every generation is charged with its recovery. And so I wanted to just ask you we now have lived through a few decades and have seen a map forming. You know, you have this term, a map maker's confession, which is something very deep in your heart. Cher, what do you observe? as what falls under this category of what has been lost in kind of the name of evangelicalism as you see it over these last couple decades? You know, Morgan, I think um, it's helpful to come to this conversation with two, two questions. One is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus? And ha- so how does someone answer the question of what is the good news of Jesus? And the second question of what does it mean to be saved? In the the world of theology, it's called soteriology. It's the question of um, the study of of salvation, of what it means to be saved. So when you ask someone the question of what does it mean to you to be saved by Jesus? And I want to suggest that the way that we answer those two questions is incredibly pivotal for how we orient ourselves as followers of Jesus. And what I've noticed, Morgan, and what I'm learning is that in the early 20th century, something happened in American Christianity. There was um, sort of a, a split, as it were. Esau McCulley, he calls it the Hundred Years' War, that we're, we're at the end of a Hundred Years' War, or we're at least, God willing, at the tail end within American Christianity. And there was a split basically between what we might call the social gospel which a gospel that said that the, go- the, the, the good news of Jesus and what it means to be saved has to have some implication for how we orient ourselves 
in the world on behalf of other people, on behalf of um, justice in the world, on behalf of the poor and the oppressed. And then um, the other stream that said, no, it's about personal salvation. And those things are a distraction from the gospel, that it's about getting people saved, getting people into, quote unquote, heaven. And that there was a, um, a divorce, as it were, in American Christianity in the beginning of the 20th century. So you follow that divorce through the rest of the 20th century, and you find um, that in many circles of what, what we might call now non-denominationalism or American evangelicalism, the definition of what it is to be saved was, it's not about being a good person. I remember hearing that so much. It's not about being a good person. It's about accepting uh, that Jesus died for your sins and receiving Him as your personal Savior and your guarantee then of your eternal salvation. I cannot tell you, Morgan, the number of times that I heard it's not about being a good person. And you're even saying like that there was so much emphasis on pray this prayer. Did they pray that prayer? Did they accept Jesus Christ even on their deathbed as though that were the only thing? Right. Right. And and again, like coming into a personal relationship with Jesus is 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 vital. But divorce from all other things, right. so much of what is offered and intended in the gospel is lost. Yeah, exactly. So Dallas says, you know, he says, uh, familiarity gives way to over familiarity, which gives way to presumed familiarity which actually gives way to unfamiliarity and contempt. So basically he's saying that there became this this idea of like this is what the gospel is. It's you know these spiritual laws humans are divorced from God. The only way back to God is through the death, the atonement of Jesus. Say this prayer and you're reconciled to God. And that was the the force of of evangelicalism. Now, what happened on the you know on the more progressive side was, you know, the way to sort of the reaction to that evangelicalism was a loss of the sense of the reliability of the scripture and a loss of the sense of no Jesus died and was raised again, a loss of a belief in the supernatural. So both this divorce cost both sides, and what I think is remarkable, Morgan, is that we find, therefore, on the progressive side. Um, sort of the half-truth of it matters a lot about what kind of person you are because our choices have implications on the lives of others and on the state of creation. Our choices matter in terms of the kind of economy we build. Our choices matter in terms of the kind of social structures we build. Um, our choices matter beyond our personal, you know, our, our sort of our personal individual kingdom. But on that progressive side that what has been lost is a sense of the resurrection of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the reliability of the Scripture and uh, the authority of the Scripture in an effort to deal with problem problems that that progressive side saw in the Scripture. There was sort of, you know what, we're going to have to basically not believe um, what, what the apostles were testifying to, not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. On the right, sort of the reaction to the progressive side on the on the evangelical side was we're not we're gonna make it all about personal salvation. Personal salvation as in people being reconciled to God, and I say that in quotation marks by the atonement of Jesus and receiving that, but having no um, responsibility, very little responsibility to um 
you know, beyond your sort of personal holiness defined primarily in your sexuality and certain narrow categories, that's, you know, there's not much responsibility that comes with um, receiving the the grace of God. Well, and just even maybe to take it a step further, would you say it's fair to say there wasn't a inherent social responsibility, mm-hmm. but also there wasn't even an emphasis on inner transformation? That's right. So being a Christian or not was everything, right? It's are you saved or not, as though it's this one objective definitive reality, which we're not um, negating, but right. say, simply saying there is more totally. because the kind of person we become is yes. when Christ inhabits us in increasing measure over time. We grow in stature and wisdom and favor with God and man, as the scripture says that we're the kind of person that can co-create with God, that can rule and reign with God and bring good and not harm. But when it simply is sinner saved by grace, it's simply of pray the prayer, we haven't been formed and we're actually not ready to rule. Right. So we have then comes the late 20th century and we have the birth of the movement of spiritual formation. And that was, you know, a movement of God that started with Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, where they said every generation is constantly losing the gospel. Every generation is charged with its recovery. So at the end of the 20th century, we see this, what I, what I would say is this movement of God to meet us in our dire need that we had lost, we lost that um, not only, you know, Again, those theological terms are we justified, but this call to regeneration, to the renovation of the human person, that um, we're called to, you know, be conformed to the image of Jesus. And and what is the vision for that? As we've talked about, what is the intention? What are the means? So at the end of the 20th century, there was this incredible revival, if you will, in what I'll call American evangelicalism of uh, this dawning at that point, of an invitation to reflect on pervasive inner transformation. And then you have um, Ransomed Heart and Wild at Heart come on board, where in Waking the Dead and John recovers, you know, he says forgiveness is one-third of one-third of the work of Jesus, that John, um, and, and I know others, but I'm just most familiar with John Eldridge's work, began to unpack the work of Christ and that we are not only saved, but then we're, you know, um, delivered from the tyranny of of sin. We're ransomed from the kingdom of darkness. John um, and Stacy and Brent and those who, you know, late 90s, the advent of sacred romance, and then into the early 2000s, Journey of Desire, Wild at Heart, Waking the Dead. First of all, recovered the category of spiritual warfare, that we live in a world at war, and recovered the full work of Jesus and applied it. Uh, what does it look like for the human heart to be, you know, Isaiah 61? So, so the you see these incredible provisions, but um, what we I believe have recovered now, Morgan, um, as God continues to move us to recover the gospel, is we've recovered this idea of the human vocation. Um, this is coming through the Bible Project, and this is coming through your work, Morgan. Coming through N.T. Wright. Come through N.T. Wright for sure, which is this. Now let's revisit the scriptures. Let's take some of the. Um, you know, history that was recovered actually through archaeology and movements in history that happened in the 20th century, where we we have new insights into the Hebrew language, we have new insights into the cultural context of the ancient Near East to understand and 
um, revisit Genesis 1 and 2 and see that God's original design, His original intention was to create a universe where He delegated authority. And He delegated authority in the spiritual realm to spiritual beings, and He delegated authority in the terrestrial realm on earth to humans, that we were, we're imagers, we're made in God's image to rule and reign. Human sin and rebellion entered into the human heart and then into the spiritual beings. There was a, a, a rebellion as well, bringing you know the fall of of Satan, and so these these co rebellions in the spiritual realm and in the earthly realm, and humans became corrupted in our vocation to rule and reign. We became fallen kings and fallen queens who had a. A, a corruption inside of us, and then a, a spiritual force at work in the world to continue to incite our rebellion against our Creator, to cause us to seize power for ourselves. Then we become um, corrupted kings and corrupted queens, and we we lo- have to look no further than our the corruption we've ravished upon the earth, or the corruption that we've ravished on each other to see that. And Morg, you just did such a beautiful job uncovering this and becoming a king. And with um, this, what happened with Rabbi Zacharias, I can't help but think of, you know, your chapter on fallen kings and fallen kingdoms. And I just want to suggest that I think part of that is still the remnant of what happened in the 20th century where we lost, we lost the vision of the human vocation. We lost the idea that, that our salvation, um, our salvation is not, how shall we say, in this age, primarily about our kind of post-mortem, our, our location in terms of, quote-unquote, a, a disembodied heaven. But salvation is the recovery of the rest- restoration of a human being into someone who can have the a tr- inner transformed character so that men and women can wield power without it bringing harm to themselves or others. And men and women can... Um, wield power in a way that uh, stewards the gift of creation and stewards the reality that we're interconnected so that um, as we are delegated authority, our authority, um, because of our personal transformation through the power and regeneration of the Holy Spirit and our participation with the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us, we become the kinds of men and women who can um, walk in the original vocation, which is an earthly vocation to rule and reign here on earth that's not primarily focused on a you know postmortem disembodied existence. So I just I just want to acknowledge that as we're grieving another story of a fallen king and a fallen kingdom, I can feel my um sort of this temptation to despair of is the gospel impotent to transform humans if someone like Ravi Zacharias can have all of those ideas in his head but still have this corrupted character you know, it's, it tempts me to want to doubt the reliability and the potency of the life of Jesus. But I want to suggest that it's um, it's not that the problem is not intrinsic in Christianity. The problem is that we received an impoverished gospel mm-hmm. in the 20th century, and that God is working in our age to recover the truth of of the story, and um, that that God willing, you know. I imagine that's going out upon the earth, and I'm just so wanting to be a part of that, to receive it into my own heart first, and then to encourage each other that all is not lost, that a new day is dawning, 
that something is being recovered through this refocusing on human vocation on earth as it is in heaven. And um, that we can be so expectant that this revival over the next 10 to 15 years is going to be remarkable in terms of the maturing of the body of Christ, at least in America, God willing. As we were talking about this this morning, that phrase was coming to us, a new dawn is rising, that something is being lost and something is being recovered. And we do just have that scent in the air. There's a scent of something among us that's being recovered. And as you said, we really believe that there's revival in the form of slow and steady transformation of the whole person in context of community, vocation, place, sphere of influence. And so, Sherry, that phrase, impoverished gospel, that that just feels um, very important for our friends to hold on to and in humility to become curious of where is the gospel impoverished in me? Where have I lost the gospel? I remember sitting with a mentor that said, be passionate about what you believe and know that much of what you believe will be very much changed a decade from now. That You have to hold both of those things in a sacred, divine tension. And so I would invite our listeners to be curious about where is your gospel impoverished? And I'll give an example. So I was an economics major and grew up in kind of the economic version of this kind of postmodern age where it was it was Keynesian economics and it was the Adam Smith, the invisible hand, capitalism was somehow associated with Christendom, that there was some sort of just um, carte blanche blessing on capitalism. And growth is good and up and to the right and more and more is better and better. But we're living through an age where you know it by its fruit. And unrestrained capitalism with no checks and balances we are discovering may not necessarily be fully aligned with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, even as I say that, it feels like heresy on some level because it pushes against all these buttons and these presuppositions in us that are so deep. But as an example, very much challenge reading a book called Donut Economics. And this isn't about donuts like Dunkin' Donuts, though I love a good blueberry donut. <laughs> Seriously, Mike, I get you a donut oh, next man, time. Oh, man, I'm a donut. I got a weakness for donuts. Please don't ever offer me one. But this is about a concept where this brilliant economist started looking at the, um, the economic theory that shaped culture and governments and nations through the late 1900s. And it was the invisible hand, and it was the idea of supply and demand and these oversimplified graphs that didn't account for what you're talking about of the whole culture, the whole community, the whole earth. And so she challenges readers to consider what if a we would call it a biblical version of economics is this donut model. So if you picture a donut, a round circle that we were meant to grow, we were meant to mature, we were meant to create straight out of Genesis, right? To rule and reign and to continue the co-creative act with God. But there are limitations. 
And on the inside of the donut are these base limitations of growth cannot come at the expense of basic human needs. In other words, the whole idea of the Imago Dei and the inalienable rights is every human being has an inherent right to safety, to food, to clothing, to shelter, to um, education, to basic healthcare. Those are simple, dignifying human rights that we actually have a moral responsibility to defend and to invest in. So that's at the center of the donut. And at the very outside of the donut are these kind of existential ideas of there are limits to things in a finite world. In other words, we now are living for the first time in human history in a generation that has a capacity to affect the globe on a global scale by our decisions, right? Of just the way um, economic policy and political policy is actually affecting the earth. There are limitations in resources like fossil fuels. Pollution causes global problems. We even saw it with the pandemic of there's a disease in China and every human group has been touched by it. And I read an article in Times that said that the human group on the earth that was most hit by the pandemic were actually the people that live in the Amazon because they are some of the most removed from other human contact. And when people came to help them in other ways, when they brought COVID, it was actually devastating. And so the the COVID-19 simply reflects the idea of we are on very significant levels, one economy, one community, and one tribe. And so for the first time in human history, we're pushing up against limits of what the earth can sustain. And so now the question becomes, do we have a responsibility to the earth? As image bearers, as co-creators, the work in which we do, is there an inherent responsibility to say, at what cost? And if we destroy the earth in which God set us to rule and reign, is this gospel. And so it's just a simple idea of this donut economic philosophy is not saying growth is bad, but it's saying what are the boundaries in which growth was meant to thrive that take on this this holistic view of the human experience. And if we're humble to consider our limitations of what creation can do and the damage we cause, and we're humble to say we have an inherent responsibility for the basic needs of all human beings, that should actually shake, shape economic policy. And so it's just one example where I personally am allowing my gospel to be challenged to say maybe more isn't always better. And then as I go back to the Gospels and I see the life of Jesus, all of a sudden it's illuminated in new realities. And so friends, we're just wanting to pause and say, there's nothing new, but the stories of this hour are once again shining light on the human predicament. And we find ourselves in a very unique time in history. And so what is your role? in the story and what needs to be challenged within you in your worldview to help move to the life that we were meant to live. Mm-hmm. You know, Morgan, I'm so touched by that story and it reminds me of, um, I know for you and I both, Holy Spirit has used Jesus's challenges in the Sermon on the Mount 
over and over again. And specifically, as Matthew records in chapter 7 of his gospel, um, Jesus' challenge of the plank and speck. Mm-hmm. And what is so moving about that to me is that the plank in our eye distorts our vision. And I think that um, we have talked about, you know, personally, interpersonally between you and me, what is our plank? <laughs> like, what is it that is in my eye that causes me not to see well, specifically as it relates to you in our marriage and vice versa? But I think that if we hold and really allow um, Jesus's words and as recorded in Matthew 7 to, to interrogate us, we find that we have to ask the question of what is it about my social location that might distort my vision. For example, like you're saying, this we grew up in the 80s. We, we were formed by capitalism. Like, right. And where have I, where do I have a bias that's caused me to read that into what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a way that, you know, is is not actually um, reflective of of either the texts, if we take them in their wholeness, or of the of the heart of God. And to just begin to let ourselves be interrogated because we know that the to get the planks out of our eyes is going to let us see Jesus and his the good news of his kingdom more clearly which is going to lead like you said to um streams of living water overflowing in us so i think that question of like what do i need to unlearn as it relates to what the good news of Jesus is based on my social location and that might be my social location in american evangelicalism that for me actually some of that was my social location in progressive Protestantism, because I had to unlearn to be suspicious of the resurrection. I mean, that's a funny thing for a Christian to have to unlearn, but I, you guys, I I grew up in an environment that told me the resurrection wasn't real. So I had to interrogate where have I learned the gospel wrong on both sides, both where I've been in, you know, um, located for the last 20 years in American evangelicalism, but in my first 20 years was spent in American progressive Christianity. And there's things that are precious to me about that, but there's also been things I've had to unlearn there. And friends, we right, we all have these blind spots, and that's why I hear you saying, Cher, I love that God has given you visibility to both extremes in the split you're talking about in the early 1900s. Yes. And I think a great book on this that we've been diving into is David Brooks and the Second Mountain, where he really, it, it, the book we unpacked earlier last year was Road to Character that he wrote. This is his follow-up book on this. And he does a brilliant job of explaining exactly what you're talking about, Sherry, of saying, what were we born into? For example, he said, in the post-World War II culture, there was this cult, there was a cultural norm that could be simply stated, we're all in this together. There is a communal rallying point to all things. And fast forward the next generation, it became hyper individualism. And so regardless of your belief system, if you're a child born post- depression, post-World War II, there's this fundamental belief in your DNA of we're in this together, you know, volunteerism. Service to country. Service to country, right. Whereas now it's all about the big me is the term he uses. Right, and actually a cynicism toward that idea of service. You know, it's almost exactly. the, the cynicism wants to undermine those more maybe noble aspirations. And speculation on government, right? Is this like they're out to get you? And again, we're not saying beliefs, we're saying fundamental cultural norms that shape bias. And later on in the year, I hope to unpack Malcolm Gladwell's 
um, book. It's fascinating. It's called Talking to Strangers. But in it, he goes through this very deep research on all the different biases, that we all have biases. And it's very humbling, but it's very orienting because it helps us question our own skewed lens in which we bring to our situation. And I think for me, Morgan, I just had to become... Um, the Holy, by the grace of God, very aware that I bring my biases and my filters to the scripture. Yes. And therefore, I can sort of abs- abstract these proof texts that can, you know, like basically argue for all kinds of things. The Bible Project and N.T. Wright have been my, the people that have helped me most in the last four or five years to at least practice becoming aware of where have I inherited a filter that causes me to focus on certain verses at the exclusion of other verses, believing that I'm I'm taking the Bible, you know, as um, I'm 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 being a good Bible reader. I'm taking the Bible seriously, but my practice I, that I've learned is is to focus on sort of abstracted verses instead of stepping back, you know, and seeing the story as, as Bible Project says as one story. Unified story leading to Jesus, but that starts and focuses on on the human vocation made in the image of God to steward the earth and our obligations and responsibility and in interconnectedness with each other. And so, if we if we don't begin to question the filters we bring to the scriptures, then we're just going to find those echo chambers that just continues to support what we already believe, mm-hmm. and we're not going to actually let the text disrupt us shake us out of our, like you said, Morgan, those those cultural biases that have nothing to do with the good news of the kingdom and be born again as if children needing to be reformed completely down to the level of our deepest non-conscious convictions about what is good and true and beautiful. So friends, thank you for pausing with us to just give consideration of where are we located in time, in history, and what portions of the gospel are being lost in our generation and very uniquely in my own worldview? And how is it that God is uniquely recovering the gospel in this moment in history? And what would be your place in it? Sherry, I know that you spent a lot of time praying and reading and diving into this. So appreciate you so much bringing these ideas to us today. And I'd love to close this episode with just some lingering prayer of perhaps you just guiding us through a bit of like, where would one go, right? You just turn off this podcast now, which is simply a conversation and content And what might you do in your own soul as a simple 1%, two-degree shift, simple practice to move towards God with these ideas? You know, Morgan, for me, what I'm touched by is the continual stories uh, recorded in the Gospels of Jesus healing um, those who are blind. And, you know, we see in John's Gospel this uh, exploration of physical blindness connected to spiritual blindness, and so for me, it starts with a confession of I'm 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 more blind than I realized, and then um, going from there. 
So Jesus, we take our place in your story as one who is seen the son of David, Messiah, the anointed one, the one long promised who would come and fulfill the vocation of Israel to be the true and genuine human, to defeat the powers of sin and death, and to inaugurate the transforming power that the human heart could actually be restored, delivered from the tyranny of sin and death, delivered from the corruptive powers that blind us, and restored, God, into restored relationship with you, with ourselves, with each other, all across the globe, and with your precious earth. You alone can heal our vision that we could see clearly. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for this community of men and women. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that has not abandoned us, not left us as orphans to be um, led astray by the distortions and impoverishment in human tradition that's gotten attached to your good news. But thank you that you come to us and you promise to lead us into all truth. So Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. Guide us in your truth and lead us. For you are God, our Savior, our Deliverer, our Ransomer, the Regenerator. You are God. And our hope is in you all day long. We cry out, God, with the psalmist. We cry out with the saints of down the ages. Heal our sight. Restore our vision. Cleanse us of our sin and stain and the corruption, God, that we've inherited. Restore your image in us. Form Jesus in us, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. In the name of the delivering King, the liberating King, anointed Messiah, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Friends, it's a privilege and honor for you to join us in this space. I would encourage you to return to this podcast, to begin to unravel the layers and even become aware of the worldview in which you bring to God and to the Gospels and to our pursuit to restore life as it was meant to be. Friends, we've wrestled with these ideas for quite a lot of time, and so we are just scratching the surface in this podcast. There's a couple books that we recommended um, during this podcast, and you can find them all on becomegoodsoil.com on the link from this BGS podcast episode, A New Dawn is Rising. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back together soon on another episode of Become Good Soil podcast.